January 10th, 2024. We're continuing in Moreh Nebuchim. We're in Chela Gimal in Perek Nun Aleph, which we started last time. And if you recall, just very briefly, in just a few sentences, summarizing what Harambam had set forth, because that'll lay the groundwork for the, de- the continued development here in this Perek in Harambam's words. What he described was that uh, well-known uh, parable of the Armon, of the uh, palace. And effectively, in bringing us through, there's different people who have access to the inner chamber and those who don't and those who aren't even looking at it. He described this ideal, this Moshe Rabbeinu ideal, as a state of being during which a person's mind is entirely and constantly on God and connected to that thought. So much so that Harambam got almost into an ecstatic state of being or a emotional state of being. It almost developed, or not almost, it did develop from one which was initially through the guidelines and structure of intellect, of thought, but became a relationship one, something that's experienced, not just thought about which was very significant because as we discussed and as we mentioned, whereas the more, generally speaking, focuses us on the intellect, not focusing as much on that experiential side. It was just a few weeks ago, so to speak, that contrast between Kuzari and Harambam with regards to that appreciation of God, Torah and Mitzvot, uh, here at the end, Perek Nun Aleph, there's just uh, three more chapters in the More, Harambam introduces us to this, well, later or next stage development, which uh, clearly not everyone is getting to. That's uh, very clear from his parable, but that's what he's been describing to us. What's that? I don't know the exact year. It's later though, yes. He cross-references about what he wrote in Mishneh Torah. What Harambam then concludes before, and we're not going to read this week, his He'ara, his note at the end of this chapter here on page 658, Harambam, we began just very briefly reading this paragraph. I'd like to return to it and just bring it a little bit further. Harambam writes, HaTorah Hivhira, the Torah clarified, shehesavnu. This is this avoda, this mode of worship. It doesn't mean work, it means worship. Um, that we uh, called attention to in this chapter. That's this constant thought of Yehud, uh, which develops and becomes a ahava, if you recall, he described it as as well. He says, this is only after hasagat, after intellectual appreciation, uh, apprehension. Hu amar, that's what the Torah states, you start with ahava, which for Harambam is through uh, understanding, a commitment through knowledge. And then there's the worship. And we've already been clear on several occasions, several of them in Mishneh Torah, Ebi, Ahava this is this this state of being of ahava, which certainly at the end of Hilchot Teshubah, Harambam describes it as a constant thought of God, uh, comes after an understanding. He says, in truth, the rabbis already uh, called our attention to this avoda, this worship. What's that? Ul'obdo. What's ul'obdo? Zo avoda shebalev. What does that mean? 
the worship that's referred to in Ul Abdo Bechalavchem is Avodashibalev, worship of the of the heart. Now, if that's all the rabbis stated, they didn't really state anything. I'm sorry to say it in those words, because the Pasuk says, Ul Abdo Bechalavchem. Right? So the Pasuk already says you're going to worship God with all of your heart. If the rabbis sufficed in saying, by the way, you want to know what that means? It means worship of the heart, well then they didn't really say anything. So a uh, little uh, known to the casual reader of the More, what he's referring to, and the notes even call our attention to this, is a midrash, it's quoted, and that is, what's worship of the heart? The rabbis fill out the next sentence, uh, fascinatingly, a little conspicuously, Rambam leaves out those words over here. He does give his interpretation of what those words, worship of the heart, mean, but he leaves out the word tefillah. He leaves out the word prayer, as we translate tefillah. Interesting. So Harambam says what we achieve and what we reach as we climb that ladder of understanding is a certain state of avodah, a constant state of mind, which is what the rabbis had in mind in avodah shibalev, parentheses, we're all stating now, tefillah prayer. Vihi ledati, says Harambam, let me tell you what avodah shibalev is. Now, we'd probably assume the next words are going to be some words that are exchanged, a, a daily obligation of some sort. Haf'alat ha-machshava al ha-muskal ha-rishon v'ha-hitbodedut l'shem zot b'midat ha-yecholet. It's a thought on muskal ha-rishon. It's a reference to God, the muskal, the intellectual uh, uh, being who is to be uh, tapped into, which is to be tapped into. Vehahitbodedut, bad bevad. Hitbodedut means uh, solitude. Leshem zot for that thought. Bemidata yecholet to the extent that you can. So prayer has been restructured, according to Harambam over here. It's very much not a halachic conversation, that's certain. Harambam did write about prayer in several noteworthy places in the More. Uh, one of them is, is in the famous chapter where he talks about korbanot, sacrifices. And over there, Harambam describes how not only are sacrifices, quote, according to the Torah, not ideal, even prayer with words is not ideal, Ideally, we contemplate and we connect to God with our minds. But over here, Harambam doesn't even mention that. In other words, you could have read that and said, well, it's contemplation with your mind, and it has the structure, as Harambam will write elsewhere, of Shevach Bakashan Hoda. You know, so kind of the structure that the rabbis determined, Harambam says, biblically speaking, the binding structure of prayer. I don't state that over here. Over here, it's not even at a particular time, which I know is rabbinic, but it's a constant, lifelong, minute, second, connectedness with your mind. That's very telling. Without getting into a full conversation of Harambam in the Moreh on Tefillah this week, although we can and should on another week, maybe the next time, those are his words in a very telling way. You know, it almost gets you realizing and understanding at this point, similar to some other things we've seen in the Moreh. You might recall the Ayin Tahat Ayin conversation, where Harambam has no fear presenting his vision of, so to speak, 
what the biblical precept truly is, not the developed interpretation, which is just as much, quote, biblically binding the way we discuss that, or alternatively, another way of saying it, or a different way of saying it and understanding it, the ideal as opposed to the real, and all, all important, not so nuanced, but different approaches. But that's very much, he's leading us down that, that, that road over here. But for our purposes, again, Harambam, I just want to call attention to that, Harambam is describing this state of emotional being where a person is not only utilizing their mind, but their feeling, experiencing, it's a constant state of mind and being. Only after you got there. Intellectually, he was very clear about that. That, of course, will set his way of you know meditating and... Uh, experiencing us apart from many others, but this is he's 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 delineating it somewhat for us. It's for this reason that David seems to, says Harambam, set this forth for his son Shalomo. Number one, first try to intellectually understand God. And number two, and again, this is a number two, which we just discovered. Two weeks ago, but in Perek Nun Aleph, What do you do? Quote, once you figured it out, you live in it. You experience it. Hard to put words to this, but we can certainly... Now, where's the, how's that experience real? Could you, could you also sure. use the word to be something that suggests committed to... When you when you commit when you accept a job offer, right? The idea is, is you're committing yourself to a certain way of. A certain I, understand of a I understand what I understand your La suggestion, is, but but La I don't. Avodotor, but I think. But it's but but his. Uh, I hear you, and maybe Avodah carries that baggage with it, a uh, a commitment. But it's more than that for more, him. More it's time. more, it's this a constant, serious. all-encompassing, experiential yeah. thing. Who am I? David says to Shilomo, Ve'ata Shilomo b'ni, Da'at Elohe avicha ve'ovdehu. Know your God, the God of your father, and ovdehu. Okay, Belev shalem, nefesh havetah, ki kol levavot oresh Adonai, v'chol yetzim achshavot mevin, im tedreshenu yimatzelach, v'im ta'azvenu yaznichacha, Okay, but the pasuk, again, for our purposes, first mentioning knowledge, and then avodah. The zeros, that which me as your mentor, I'm saying it for harambam, I'm telling you what you need to be cautious about, and you need to be steadfast about is focus on intellectual endeavors, understandings. Uh, concrete vision in understanding. Not the imaginative faculty which can take you off, or it can derail you. He described this already for us earlier. He says imagination might be somewhat uh, refreshing, but that's not knowledge. Uh, nothing we're too surprised Haram Bam is telling us after learning even just, what, 30 classes in the What's de'a? It's what comes up in your mind. It's what comes up in your spirit. It's not truthful. It's not concrete. It's not empirical. 
He's referring to, uh, well, wrongful philosophy, something that can't be proven, something that can't be empirically dealt with, uh, something that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering in my mind. Again, after the hasaga, if he hasn't said it enough times, what's the direction? To be in solitude with God. And to charge or to utilize your mind, to be constantly striving for this Yehud with God. He concludes, How will a person experience and feel this in solitude? And alone. I'm not sure exactly the difference between those two, but that's how he writes this. And he means, I believe, in this line, even physically, separate from others, because he writes, Lachen, therefore, Marbe Koladam Meula, every person who's a high level person will go, will, will do a lot of Lihit Boded to separate themselves. And you won't hang out, you won't spend time with anyone else unless there's a utility, there's a need. I suppose so. Well, he, he has told us that more than once. That's correct. Uh, well, that's the conclusion here. It's certainly, at least in, in my reading of the More and, and many others, is not really where we saw this going. Uh, we, I, I will say something even as a, as a layperson for a moment. When you mention the name Maimonides, Harambam, to the average person, they say, well, what would his ideal be? It's living in this world. It's a rational mode of thought. It's a way of expressing Torah while working or while endeavoring. For Harambam, just let's let's just take that in. It's it's not something we haven't noticed in the past few weeks, but we're going to repeat it again. His ideal individual is Moshe Rabbeinu at the top of the mountain, not eating and not drinking and not speaking to anyone but God. Right now, he's certainly not going to say, and he did tell us, not everyone gets there, but that's what you're striving for. But he's also writing this very specifically as he introduces his work to one student. And the idea is that he's answering the difficulties that that one student has and is potentially recognizing that that student is already, let's call him a loner. A loner I can accept, Sammy. I'm just, I, I can accept. He's writing it for an individual student. He's well aware it's going to get out there. But if I have no such ideal, if, so to speak, this is antithetical to what I believe, I'm certainly not writing this. I, it's, it's, no, I I, what I'm saying is he's finishing his book and telling us not only is this okay, not only can you find God this way, this is the way. Now, not everyone's going to get there, but it, it, it already is a paradigm shift in terms of Maimonidean philosophy for the Amcha, for the masses. The masses will tell you, I'm living, I remember, <laughs> like, like yesterday, an early rabbinical interview in which I was told we subscribe, whatever synagogue it was, to the Maimonidean vision of life. Now, clearly, and I do not blame him, he had no idea what he was saying. He certainly was not subscribing to this. I will tell you, 
and I don't think they're per se doing it right, quote-unquote, but ironically, the Kolel student could point to this passage, this pedic, and say, we're getting closer to this than you are, Sammy, right? In other words, which is an irony in the respect that that's certainly not the way it's understood. And Now, that's not to say that for the masses, he envisions this, but as an ideal, ironically, I'm just pointing out that irony. I, go ahead. Yes, sir. Why right? Yeah, but what do you mean? Yeah, I, he was here for that. Why would he spend his time writing Mishnah? If this is right. Right. No, that's a wonderful question. And I pointed out two weeks ago that that is something we need to understand. In other words, if the ideal is achieved through intellect, and then through experience of Yehud, where does halacha, why, let's do better, why did God dictate the Torah? Why do we have a Torah with mitzvot in it? Now, is it just for the masses? Is it just to keep everyone in? A lot of your question has to do with Helekimal in the Moreh, where he takes you through Ta'ameha Mitzvot. But in the broader scheme of things, your question is a solid question for this passage, which I'm not addressing this week either. Clearly, there's one of two answers. There's the there's the answer I'm comfortable with, and the answer I believe is wrong. But the academics will tell you. I'm going to start with that one. Uh, many academics will tell you he wrote it as a po- polemical gesture. What does that mean? In order to gain stature, in order for a traditional-minded community and nation to accept him, he needed to uh, earn his earn his, uh, his 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 badges. He needed to write as a traditional-minded individual, setting forth old-school uh, practice, so that they bought into it. And then he'll reveal for those who uh, accept him and accept his. Uh, this is the real story. It's, uh, it's, it, bas- it effectively says that half of his personality was fake. I'm not comfortable with that. And all, as a practicing, I'd like to say, Jew, I'm not comfortable with it either. I'm certainly biased. Um, but uh, the other approach, and there's plenty written on this, is that there's some sort of integration. This pedic is the one that makes that most difficult, or these pedakim, to understand what the integration is. Uh, well, we do have, uh, there, there's, what comes to mind in the moment, there's a book by Professor Yaakov Levinger. It's called Harambam Kiposek Ukefilosof. That's not a long book, it's maybe 250, 300 pages. Effectively, what he's doing is, well, how do these enmesh, you know, how do these fit in one with the other? How does, as you're stating it, Mishneh Torah fit in with this vision, among others, of the Moreh Nebuchim? It's an important question, which which I, I'm not going to yet address because I still want to address what he's just stating here, not what he's not. Correct. Correct. I'm being very clear about that in my, not only heart of hearts, my spoken word, my thought word. Absolutely. I think they, I, I, I am convinced they are not either or. Okay, so now in terms of just developing this point, of this pedic in Harambam, I'd like to just on a linear uh, uh, direction. I'm not looking to build over here per se, although I'm just uh, looking to open this up a little bit more by pointing to Harambam's son, uh, Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, and some of his writings and later developments which very much continue, maybe diverge a bit, but 
converge more than diverge from the words of his father on this matter. In other words, his son set forth, for all intents and purposes it appears, a movement which didn't just focus and appreciate the first uh, 95% of Moreh Nebuchim, but specifically was pronounced by these last several chapters. Go ahead. Ten years later. Toward the end. It was, uh, we know that. It was the last, uh, latest writing. Yeah. All right, so if you'll uh, switch the page over here to the, the next page, this next page is really just another reproduction, a different version, a different translation of the More. It's from this book. Uh, it's More Nebuchim by, uh, by Rabbi Yochai uh, Makbili. And I don't want to read his translation or his brief commentary. I'm really just doing this for this footnote 15 at the bottom because he has Har Havot Ve'iyunim. Quick to the point, related content, simple. But over here, he traces, obviously we're not dealing with a scholar, I mean, he is a scholar, but a scholarly, you know, academic description here, but I just want to read quickly about the personality of his son with regards to some of the movement and then an ironic symmetry. Take a look here. It says, Beno, in footnote 15, Shel Harambam, Rabbi Avraham, Hovil tinua hasidit, he began and set forth a a pietistic, Hasidit, pietistic, tenua uh, means movement, Hamichuna became known as Hasidim Israel. Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam started a movement known as the pietistic movement of Egypt. Shaharta al-Digla Ora Hayim, it so to speak chiseled into its flag and onto its banner, uh, a, a way of life has shoef mitoch datit umusarit, which strove for prophecy, not unlike his father, uh, which was pronounced by um, a, a, a religious and moral excellence. Dagesh philosophy. Uh, there was an emphasis on philosophy. Now, the words that I want most, vihit bodedut hitzonit. And then external, meaning not just internally I'm different and set apart, but I am physically set apart from others. We'll read on final pages of this from uh, this book, from uh, Professor Diana Lobel. Uh, she has some descriptions that apparently are well known in which they would have these 40 days in which they left the community and went into solitude. This was Harambam's son. So if the irony wasn't pronounced enough already, what's that? Felt a little bit like, and it did have some, you know, Islamic, uh, you know, mixed in uh, kind of uh, feelings and, and approaches. But uh, again, spun in a Jewish direction, it, it's clear. Okay, the Muvanchal Hitnatekut today in Israel, uh, in 2003, hitnatkut meant uh, separation, the disengagement from uh, Gush Katif. Hitnatkut means disengaging. Uh, it's uh, disengaging mehachevra, but not from Gush Katif, from the society. So what was Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam's approach uh, pronounced by? By a physical separation, a cloistering, a ghettoizing of individuals. For a she, period of time. For a period of time, but a way of life that is very much accentuated by this. Shehi hitroknut ha-machshava olam. It's emptying the mind from matters of this world. Nothing we're surprised from 
in the philosophical direction of Harambam, a little bit more surprising with regards to maybe the way we imagined it plays out in the real world. Yes, but again, this was a way of life. It was not. Ju- I, I, I was for the for the excessive. I was telling you the retreat, but as a way of life, this is what they were searching for. Again, an ideal defines it, even if it's not played out. That this movement was strong in Egypt. For about 200 years, Uberosha Amedu Se Harambam, and at the head of this movement were the descendants of Harambam. There are others we'll at some point from encounter. Ben David Hanagid, right from from his son onward. and here's the ironic spin. When you think, at least when I think about medieval Judaism, we generally have a tendency to say that Ashkenazic German Jewry was very different than, we usually say Sephardic, we probably mean Spanish, but even Middle Eastern Jewry in terms of its emphasis, in terms of its direction. There was a well-known movement in Germany during about the same time period known as Hasideh Ashkenaz. Would you know it? Hasidut as well, pietistic individuals, the pietists of Germany, of Ashkenaz. They were led by people like Rabbi Yehuda Hasid, Rabbi Eliezer of Vermeiser, the Rokeach, and others. And, says Rabbi Makbili, interestingly, there is a lot of crossing paths with regards to their general trajectory of, these are the words Harambam led us to, Avodat Hashem. And I say it's surprising because in terms of the specifics, you're not going to find the way Hasidah Ashkenaz had an emphasis on turning to the mentor to tell you all. You're not going to find that. That was probably influenced somewhat by a Christian uh, surrounding. You turn to your religious leader. You're not going to find the rituals of repentance, uh, the Darke Tishuban Kapara, which Hasidah Ashkenaz had in Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam. So you're going to have major differences which were very much pronounced by cultural, even though you could find sourcing in Jewish sources, but at their core, here's the point, they share in the respect that an isolation, a solitude from the general society is not only okay, it's ideal. So he writes, he says, at the same time, that's this book that I was telling about. Based on what I described to you, it should be as no surprise that their angle was not philosophically inspired. Uh, but again, their end point was very similar. This avodah, it should be noted, both of these movements have disappeared. And what ended up happening, the Western and Eastern Jewry, so to speak, tafsu what got what took hold, isn't that a fascinating thing? What took hold the the, the Kabbalah of let's call it Sifat, of called 16th century Sifat, and then afterwards, about a hundred years later, in Eastern Europe, in the more of the East, so then what takes hold the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidut. And so the, the there's a lot of interesting historical um, uh, pr- progressions over here. What I'd like to, in the rest of the time together, is to read a little bit 
in case you're not convinced that this is actually a, uh, a way of life and a, uh, a programmatic direction over here. I want to read together with you from this book, from some of this book, from Sefer HaMaspik. Sefer HaMaspik, Le'ovdeh Hashem, is the magnum opus of Rabbeinu Be- Avraham ben Harambam, much of which we have, uh, others are fragments that are not, uh, per se, uh, in our possession. Yeah. Here's a question. When you talk about the seclusion of this, of this movement, were they doing it as a group or as individuals? It's a good question. Uh, we'll have to read a little bit of her description at the end. I don't know. Um, certainly the way Rabbeinu Avraham, which we'll read in a moment, will describe, he doesn't describe what he's doing per se, at least not in this passage, is individuals over the course of time doing it individually. And, 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 and applauding them. And so what, interestingly, what Rabbeinu Avraham is going to do, just to give you a brief outline of the parts that we're going to read, is in this perek, which is about hitbodedut. It's a word that we just came in contact with in Harambam, this isolation, this solitude, a full, long passage on this matter. He is, in terms of traditional Jewish thinkers, to the best of my knowledge, the first one to really accentuate this, although it may be in fashion today, you know, having this meditative retreat. And Judaism certainly didn't have this historically. He focuses on this and he gets into it in detail. But he goes more than that. His, his, his vision over here is to trace it backward is to say this is what we've always been doing. Now, whereas Harambam described Moshe Rabbeinu at the top of Har Sinai, 40 days, 40 nights, no, no, no food, no drink, because he didn't need it, because he was so enwrapped in the experience, mm-hmm. Rabbeinu Avram ben Harambam will point to all sorts of other words, others over the course of time, and just point and say, that's what was going on there, what do you think was happening there, why do you think he was doing that? He's going to point to passages and personalities in Tanakh, which we're all familiar with, and perhaps had a little bit of a different vision as to why they were where they were, as, per, as opposed to Rabbeinu Avraham says, you should know why they were doing They were doing it for Yitzbod to do. Well, let's see it. He says, uh, first and foremost here on page 274, he says, three lines from the bottom, Now, clearly, the external, uh, dividing yourself or separating yourself, is purpose to get your internal connected, you know, so to speak, to God. So that's, he says, that's why the prophets, the Nevi'im, and their students, the pious, the pious ones, uh, they, they took this, what does it mean to, so to speak, externally or physically separate yourself? It's, it's about distancing yourself from human beings. It's hard to believe, Eli, that he's going to say, do it as a community. You're not really distant. It's literally distancing yourself He's going to help us. He's going to, he's going to tell us. Pretty, pretty much everyone. Yeah, pretty much everyone. <laughs> it's to separate yourself from the societal norms, pressures, ways, so that you're not distracted and, uh, un- and, and your focus isn't ruined by them. Because you're going to look at what others are doing. You're going to listen to the conversation. You're going to get caught up in their issues, in the worldly issues. It's going to bring you to looking at, peering at the greatness of God. And you're going to in turn look at all that he's created through this isolation. El me'asemura shehem esperem a description of David 
looking at the world, taking it in, and appreciating it. I didn't describe David as being a mitboded just yet. Velo'od, ela shahaya shokea besar'apav ad shenirdam. He says the prophets would be so wrapped up in that thought that it would lead them to a pigi'ah. Pigi'ah, milashon, probably Yaakov Avinu, It's touching the divine, um, coming in contact with godliness. In, in sleep, in a time of a slumber. You might wake up, but you're still connected. He's again citing Pesukim uh, in the context of David's words. He still hasn't really brought us concrete evidence, but he's describing to us. What is this ideal? What is it? Sometimes you have a complete isolation, solitude. Sure. Sabi so said in, in number 10, yes. He's quoting in, in number 10 from Harambam's words in, in, in Mishneh Torah in several places and from Kuzari. Again, there you're going to get the initial stages. You're not going to get a programmatic guide for isolating yourself from human beings, right? What's that? Sure. Pardes is going to be the... You see, but the only thing about being nichnas la pardes Bam could be, if you just read the Mishneh Torah, interpreted as, well, I did intensive study in physics and metaphysics. It doesn't mean that my lifestyle necessitated a separateness and a, a solitude. Uh, maybe I won't appreciate it as much. Rabbi Avraham is, is saying pretty much not in these words, anyone who's done it, did it this way. Anyone who's, who's achieved prophecy, anyone who's had this Yehud Hashem, separated himself from human beings. It wasn't a byproduct of being connected. It was a mode to connection. So, this is those who didn't get to that level, but tried to. And, uh, uh, sure. I, I don't know that he specifically addresses it, but he should. He would be very excited about explaining it like that, I, I am certain. This is sometimes you'll have a complete uh, uh, separation. You separate yourself from a city. You'll go out to the, to the desert. And the mountains. And places where there's no uh, settlement, there's no people. Sometimes. You can't do it, or you won't do it entirely. You do it partially. You'll go into the home. And Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam will, we're not going to read it all, go into it and say, you know, that one, he did it entirely. That one, and he has lots of cases, he did it in the home in order to achieve prophecy at points. Some people did it constantly, or some people will do it constantly. Some are, some are just uh, at, at specific times. Sometimes that it's going to take, a, a, it's going to be prolonged, prolonged. However, let it be known, he says, to have this as a absolute constancy. You live in this world. You can't disassociate yourself, associate yourself entirely from this world. Okay. That being the case, again, 
I, I more than anything read those words and read those words together with you to make the point that we are not reading A, someone from Hasidut Ashkenaz in this description. We are not even reading Mesilat Yesharim or something along those lines. We're reading the son of Harambam, a leader of a community whose vision and program and mission is to bring forth a connectedness to God in this world, but kind of out of this world while in this I mean, it's an amazing thing. And I'll bring us through, in case you were wondering, who are the people that we're referring to? Well, let, let's go down. Uh, he, he says, Kanagid, Kidavar, uh, four lines into the next one, Mefursam Kubal Avshilohu Vam Furash Bishum Pasuk. I'm going to tell you something that's well known, even though it's never explicit, that this is what everyone was doing. Shezohaitatar Koshil Hanoch. This was the way of Hanoch. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Hanoch, there's one pasuk in the Torah that describes who he was and what he did. It's right there. Perek he, pasuk kaftal. Vaitalech Hanoch et ha'elohim. Ve'enenu ki lakachoto elohim. Hanoch walked with God. He's no longer here because God took him. What does that... Obviously, you're going to have many interpretations. Here's the irony I again mention. I, just two weeks ago, would you know it, quoted the mystical interpretation of those lines. I even referenced the words of uh, Nefesh HaHayim when he refers to this. The mystical tradition and description, a parable of sorts, is that Hanoch walked with God because he was a shoemaker. And every time he stitched shoes together, he had specific thoughts and kavanot with regards to God. No, but listen to the imagery that I'm painting for you, how different it is than Rabbeinu Avraham. Rabbeinu Avraham says, you want to know what Hanoch was doing? He lived a life in which he was out of this world. For that reason, God took him earlier. And that's, that's the description. He lived to 365. God took him because he was out of this world already. Ironically, the Kabbalistic approach to this matters. No, no, no. He was in this world. He just, in this world, found a way of stitching God into it. It's a fascinating contrast, and the irony for me is palpable. It's Rabbeinu Avraham who's taking him from this world while in this world, as opposed to the way the standard person. What would the Kabbalists say? The Kabbalists must say that he uh, cloistered him. No, 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 that's his reading. And this pasuk is completely cryptic. Doesn't know yet all of these. Says Rabbeinu Avraham, I'll tell you what he was doing. He was up in the upper worlds with God. What was he doing? He was exiling himself. He was separate. Would you know it? Our most social patriarch, Abraham Avinu. Abraham Avinu, this is a fascinating statement. He's not saying Harambam, excuse me, he's not saying Abraham Avinu lived a life separate from human beings. He is saying at a critical moment, which we learned together in the Moreh, a prophetic moment of Akedat Yitzhak. Well, how is that appreciated in the text? Me and the lad, meaning myself and my son, we will isolate, go to the top of a mountain away from you so that, says Rabbein Avraham, we can connect. Uh, that's, a, that's a very nice reading of, of the text. You're supposed to understand. He says, from the fact that he spoke so matter-of-factly in this moment, the text just alludes to it. You should understand, says Rabbein Avraham, this is not the only time he did this. He used to do this often. Okay. Maybe as Avraham. That's what he says. He says, from the fact that he kind of just says it, oh, you should know this, this must have been his tendency. Okay. Yitzhak, I'm just reading his words. You should know we have have this with Yitzhak as well? Really? What do we even know about Yitzhak? 
went out to something in the field. Lasuach. Now the rabbis in Masechet Berachot have lasuach melashon siha tefillah. It's prayer. It is contemplative in some respect. Uh, the simple interpretation of the text, I believe, is Ibn Ezra. Lasuach is 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 to tend to his fields. Uh, says Rabbi Avraham, let me tell you why it's in the Sadeh. Don't focus as much on Masuach. Understand he needed to go out to the field to be away from people. Of course, the irony that Rivka finds him there, but that's where he's going. He's going for prophetic and, or, or more than prophetic, for Hitbodidut, not more. Just as Hitbodidut, Yehud Hashem. Veloi ta'asikwa avot v'achrem b'nehem shalchu b'darkam b'ri'iyat zon, velo b'yisuka hair ela. You want to know why they were shepherds? Not because everyone in Canaan was a shepherd, but rather because they were seeking and searching Hitbodedut. That's the way to do it. Be a shepherd. Really. He says, I'll do this with Yaakov, and it's easy. Fourteen years as a shepherd, and therefore when Lavan nonetheless came and gave him an option, what was Yaakov's decision? I don't want money. I want to continue working. Why does he want to continue working? Says Rabbi Avraham. Because that's his mechanism to connectedness. He says it's very clear, it was very difficult for, for Yaakov, but Yaakov not only accepted, he embraced it, he wanted it. It was his Ora Hayim. Anything else would be inappropriate. Okay, next. Moshe Rabbeinu. Can you find an easier source than Moshe Rabbeinu? Adonah Nevi Moshe, Eved Adonai Yushlocha, Yaro'eh, Etzon Yitro Choteno, Ma'amik Lachdor HaMidbar B'Sha'at Riyah. Why was, as the Pasuk goes out of its way to tell us, Moshe making his way into the desert? That's what it says. When he encounters God at the burning bush, he was making his way into the desert. Why? So the rabbis have different interpretations. Says Rabbi Avraham, I'll tell you the most simple one. It's not because there weren't places to graze in Midian. I'll add for a moment, he's going to the desert. The desert isn't a place to graze. Don't ask me a question. Don't contradict me from Onkelos. Onkelos seems to describe the reason he's going there is Atar Shefar. Atar means a place. Dibatra Hadin, place. Shefar, Shapir means good. To a better place, Raya, to, to, to graze, the Madbera in the desert. It sounds like the reason he was going there was not for uh, seclusion, it was a better place for graze. Says Rabbein Avram, you're right, okay, Uncle Luz can explain it his way, I can explain it differently. Fascinating. You should know, Uncle Luz, as much as I'm adding, my father, Harambam, respected him. 
He's not always in line with our tradition entirely. Okay, and of course, the Ale Elai Haharav, Ma'amad Harsinai, in the Parashat Mishpatim, in the next paragraph, Vi'ish lo ya'ale imach, nobody can go up onto that mountain with you, you need to be secluded. Umoshe ikahita oil, at the end of Parashat Kitisa, he took his oil, oil moed, and he was note, he brought it outside of the camp. Why is he doing all that? Seclusion <laughs> is not only appropriate, it's necessary. Onward, 279. Our, our wanderings in the desert. What do you think it was for? It was purposeful. Be away from society, civilization for 40 years. It was so that we grow and our connectedness to God. At the end of Sefer Devarim, I... What's that? Indeed, as a group, but at the very least away from other societies. Developing is to, to be able to understand how to detach from the potential trends that society may take you. Sure. And build a. Sure. A so, as a result, I think what Sammy's doing is, is to a certain extent. Mitigating in, in my response to, to Elliot from earlier and saying he's not going to say that you can't and maybe even shouldn't ideally do this in a community where you can uh, focus yourself appropriately. But I am just going to remind you that most of his examples were separate from society. Now, again, you might have an ideal. Yes, maybe the Midbar, maybe the mission for Am Yisrael is to do it as a nation, as a community. Okay, and uh, why are you in the desert? So that you would know. And onward, uh, and onward, and onward, and several other examples and approaches to this matter. I believe so. I don't think he's being polemical. I think he's very much convinced. He's then got Dugmaot, which I'm not going to read, of Hitpodidut in Batim. What's his first, of course? Yaakov is in Ishtam, Yoshev, Ohalim. What's the significance of him being Yoshev, Ohalim? He had a way of separating, maybe not entirely, but at the very least, going inside physically. Okay. I bring you now to the last part of really what I wanted to stress, and it to a certain extent brings us back to, I don't know if it was during the class or after the class, a comment that Yachama asked or, or pointed out. He said, this all seems a little antithetical to you. That's he was pointing at me. And what he meant by that was he was he's he's heard, unfortunately, more than once, or maybe fortunately, more than once, uh, my general approach to a life, my understanding of rabbinic literature with regards to philosophy on life, but more specifically and more pronounced, I've more than once returned to the Gemara and Masechet Shabbat and Daflamid Gimal, the story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the cave. And what I've pointed out by means of reading both sensitively and not so is that that Midrash in the Gemara seems clear to me, but not only to me. I have sources and, 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 and references over the course of many generations to not be a description of an ideal, but to be a description of a punitive punishment. You have to disassociate from others because you don't know how to live with others. And when Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the most, the most, the most telling moment, what's that? It's a criticism. It's a criticism of his ways, and in turn, the only way to fix you is by separating you. The best example, among many others, is that when he comes out. After uh, look, he goes and kills uh, people and burns fields. And the that all that will get the exact lesson. You came to destroy my world. Get back in there. What do you mean, get back in there? What a blessing! Back into Gan Eden. Couldn't get better than that. So yes, there's a description of Gan Eden in there, but it's a not this worldly way of life. For Rabbeinu Avraham, as I was reading these words today, 
I was thinking to myself, that comment of Elliot has to creep in here because this could not be a better place for him to now accentuate, point to that and say, you see, that's how they did it right. Again, where Harambam may have brought us there, but didn't at the end of the Moreh, his son, Rabbein Avraham, will do it entirely. Take a look at how he writes this on page 291, obviously skipping several pages in Sefer Maspik. Ulisikum noseh perek nomar ki tofa'at ha'itbodudut ba'me'arot nizkeret betoldatem sholishonei hazal. You'll find in the early, uh, early in the descriptions of the early rabbis in uh, Talmud and Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai ubno hitbodudut, Rabbi Shimon and his son, Bilazar hitbodudut ba'me'arot, in, in one uh, uh, cave, Shanim Rabot The initial reason for them going was because the government wanted to kill them. On the way to remember Daflamid Gimon, in case you're wondering, is of course Lagba Omer Bishimon Bar Yochai. It's as a result an easy reference. Shabbat Daflamid Gimon. Ela Shemitochak. It may have not been their intuition, it may have not been their inspiration to go to the, the, that cave. You can't deny the words of the rabbis on that, that they didn't run there as an ideal initially. But says Rabbi Avram, once they went there, and there's no denying that. The Gemara does describe them connecting, and our tradition does describe that. The question is whether that was an ideal or not. The Gemara describes how miracle transpired for the Bishimon Bar Yochai, how there was a brook that uh, that developed and a carob tree, which I always say was not much of a miracle, probably a curse in disguise. Who likes carobs? But regardless, the description is says Rabbein Avram. Now again, I'll remind you that there are many miracles described in Talmud about Tanaim and Emoraim. They weren't always in caves. Okay, so I'm saying that the proof is not such a strong proof, but the fact that it's brought in context, says Rabbi Avraham, uh, they must have been achieving. Listen to the proof he brings for this. He says it's explicit. Everything I said to you a moment ago is the proof that this was not an ideal. This was quite a critique of them. Okay, so initially, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm ahead of myself. The Gemara describes how Eliyahu and Avi comes and reveals to them, again, somewhat prophetically, you have to imagine, that the Gezerah, the persecution decree against them is done because the Caesar has died. Here's the line. In the moment where they come out, they're so appalled. How could human beings just work out in the field? How could they seed and sow the field and plow it? They went out. They were critical of people who were working on the field. How could you be involved in this? He says they were so affected, affected positively that any place they looked burned. That's a positive consequence. And you should know they now came out and they again encountered God. Okay, so 
The Gemara says that a, a heavenly voice came out. Oh, heavenly voice. Prophetic, connectedness. And it says to them, are you here to destroy my world? Get back into the cave, says Rabbeinu Avram. You understand what that was? That was a moment of Moshe Rabbeinu. That was a moment of we get to go back into the cave. Again, an absolute antithetical, opposite read of the Gemara than I've always set forth. Amazingly not found in the words of I don't know the founder founder of Beis Madrash Gavoa. I don't know the founder of Hasidut. I don't know I mean, anything or everything. It's found in the words of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Harambam, which again, um, perhaps with more knowledge, which thankfully I have a little bit more knowledge of his, I just didn't know he went this far, to be honest with you, but to understand that his father's words at the end of the more did, I believe, or maybe his way of life in some respect or teachings, inspire this. This is certainly taking it to not the next step, but the next steps or stages. But Rabbi Avraham is not here denying father's teachings. It certainly is built on a foundation of philosophy. It is, however, brought to the point where we now say this is, to a certain extent, and ideal. And he goes onward. And I'm just going to conclude with this in, in the Sefer speak, and then a few words from the final description of this Professor Lobel. He goes on to speak so praisingly and so beautifully about, would you know it, Eliyahu Hanavi and Elisha. Eliyahu Hanavi, the one who couldn't live with human beings, the one who needed to be taken from this world because he didn't know how to live here. Ben Avraham says, uh, that's right. He knew how to be mitbodet. It may have been because Ahav wanted to kill him that he needed to run away, but understand what he got in that. It was a blessing in disguise. Okay, I'll just conclude with this without, without reading it thoroughly and fully understanding it for the moment. I'll just bring this full circle with regards to Ben Avraham, so to speak, taking steps further than his father, Hanambam, but taking steps from what his father built. Here on page 21 in this book, it's a somewhat of a new book. It's called Moses and Abraham, Maimonides Encountering the Divine. The interesting part, although I haven't read much of the book, of it is she quotes from the dissertation of Rabbi Ezra Labatan, who of course wrote about Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam. She has much discussion with uh, him uh, or his writings. Anyway, so here, and not the part we're reading from, if you take a look on page 21, you can we'll just read a little bit together. We see another striking example in a letter found in the Cairo Geniza, which may be also written by Abraham Hasid. Again, I, I just caution, I just remind us, even if it's not written by him, this passage, it's clearly written, or not clearly, it, it stands to reason that this will describe the milieu. It'll describe what's going on. It'll describe that this is the way people are writing and thinking. In this passage, we hear about an intellectual contemplation of the cause of causes. Sibat hasibot, ilat ha'ilot. Through his revelation, he shall receive spiritual intuition and ascensions in the visions of those possessed of mystical knowledge. Then he shall ascend and drink plentifully from the source of life, after which he shall thirst no more for eternity. These words are the type of words she calls attention to that Harambam finds in the Torah and says, don't use those words in our conversation. Understand what they mean. Here the words are not just mentioned one, not twice. These sensual, experiential ways of communion with God are repeated and highlighted, and they become the focus. In other words, we go so, so far from just the intellectual to these 
all-encompassing, that I can't use words like I think, that I understand. The words need to be, I'm drinking and I'm seeing. In him shall be granted the request of the prophets that glory may praise you without him. By glory is meant the intellect through which we pray and commune with God. Perceiving what may be perceived are the radiant divine light. You might read those words and say, oh my goodness, this must be coming from Sefer HaZohar. Far from it, radiant divine light. Through your light, Orecha, we see light, Nir Eor. That's a Hasidic line, Parak I mean, this is the line. This is coming from the Beit Midrash of Rabbein Avraham ben Harambam, the, pieti- the pietist author of this letter, describes the mystical ascension of the intellect only suggested in Guide 351 through 54. This is the Pedic, the Pinakim that we're reading from. He builds on the notion, we will see in Maimonides, that the intellect is the glory of God. However, this is the point she, she accentuates, she brings out. The sensory language of drinking and thirsting suggests that the radiant divine light perceived is not purely metaphorical, but also has an experiential sensory effective dimension. And she goes on, as I mentioned afterwards, this is an, a, a paragraph which she, I guess, was found in the, I think, in the uh, Cairo Geniza as well, from this Rabbi. Rabbeinu Hananel, who is the father-in-law of Rabbeinu Avraham, in which there's a description of this almost Ramadan of sorts, you know, this this kind of going away, leaving for 40 days or something of those sorts. Um, you just read a little bit more here. In another fra- fragment on page 22, three lines from the top, Rabbeinu Hananel, again, the father-in-law of Rabbeinu Avraham ben Arambab himself writes, any person who has experienced an unveiling, in Arabic, okay, of his inner vision, strives and trains with spiritual discipline, guarding his soul from desires and pleasures. You hear the description? Again, nothing we don't expect. Harambam told us as well, abstain from the pleasure. Stay away from the restraining his bodily members when in motion and when still, that perhaps he may bring his goal to fruition and nourish him during solitary meditation with serenity and sweetness. You hear the words? I mean, now it's getting new agey, right? In other words, the description here is, it's, it's what we've read in the more until now in the first few lines, and then it gets you to the last three chapters, which seem to have struck us out of nowhere in Harambam. Abraham Maimonides, I'm in the next paragraph language of illumination, because there's a lot of this light, must be read in the context of these striking first-person accounts of spiritual practice and experience offered by his close associates, inspired by Guy, that's the More, 351, the Egyptian pietist circle developed a concrete spiritual practice. Their light imagery reflects the fruit of such practice. Whereas for Harambam, Maimonides, communion with the divine light, listen, consists in intellectual union with the active intellect. For the pietist circle, intellectual union includes experiential viewing of spiritual light, a glimpse of the divine beyond that, of the speculative intellect, a viewing which, in the words of Rabbein Avraham ben Harambam, may guide one to intellectual apprehension of the greatness of the Creator. So in short, just to bring our conversation together and to conclude, what Harambam has done here, aside from the difficulties, Elliot, that we need to deal with, with regards to how this meshes or contrasts with Mishneh Torah and a way of life in a halachic sense, Aside from how this connects or disconnects from the halachic description of prayer, which he very much maintains, from Ezo Yavoda, Shibalev, Heveo Mezo, Tefila, Harambam does fill out and somewhat finish, at least in this pedic, his conversation of this experiential, this ecstatic communion with God, 
which is not per se where the strict rational intellectual believed he was going in the Moreh, but very much is this Avodah which he's stressing. So much so that for 200 years, apparently, the continuers, his family members leading this movement, we found a pietistic precursor to Hasidim and even, you know, Eastern European Jews who would, I'm reading a book about Hafez Hayim right now, and he had a way, apparently, at some points of his life, prior to being this leading uh, figure, to exile himself. He had such a, it was shocking to me. We were still dealing with exiling yourself in 19th Can you imagine our husband leaving, and we look at them and say they're a leader today for exile. This was a practice. Gaon Mivilna, it's well known. The Hasidim, in terms of the students and the students of students of Baal Shem Tov, were well familiar with. Ironically, the beginning of all this is from Harambam or at the very least from the descendants and close followers of Harambam, it shouldn't at this point be so surprising, but it is an ironic spin. It is something that uh, could uh, catch even the person who has read the Moreh in 98% of its passages until these Perakim off guard, because it's not per se where we envisioned or thought the end goal was. And even from the more, you may have said, that's Moshe Rabbeinu, but we're not really, if we're not there intellectually, we're not even striving for that mode yet. We're going to try to focus it in a smaller sense. Ben Avraham and his adherents apparently brought it a lot further. Baruch Amen.